I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to a very special week of Hey, I Want Your Job. And this week is extra special because I get to interview one of my favorite people that I actually get to work with on the regular, Athena, <laughs> subtitle. Oh, wait, did you ask me? Sorry. Oh, what's your job title? What is my job title? Oh, okay. My uh, job title is actually Chief Creative Unicorn. Which is a ridiculously fabulous job title. I think we can all agree. (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I love it. So Chief Creative Unicorn in other companies that were less colorful, that I mean, Creative Officer, it sounds bougie as fuck, I'm not gonna lie. It does. (laughs) Super important, and like, you are in charge of all the paintbrushes. Um, But what do you actually do? Uh, so as a chief creative officer, um, specifically within Rainbow Unicorn, um, my job title and, and my role is really about, um, focusing in on the what of what we built. Uh, so we are a video game studio and, um, so as the chief creative, um, so if you think about it as various people or the, the who, what, why, when, and where, right? Um, mine is the what. So what games are we building? Uh, what market, you know, what's going to excite our market? What's going to get them to show up for every game that we build? Um, you know, get pulling the teams together to, to create those things, making sure that those, uh, the subject matter, that the projects that we're putting together are to, you know, the quality and also like creating the portfolio um, that we want uh, our studio to be to build to be building, right? So we're thinking about that balance of like what do we want to put out in the world for people to play and experience. Um, and so my job is is basically to be uh, heading up and leading that, right? To make sure that we're all um, aligned on that. So I always okay. like just the things that people call themselves in gaming. Like, it always has this, like, 1950s, like, classic Hollywood sort of vibe, like, you're the head studio, or, like... Yeah. And I think that it's actually a little bit, like, opaque to people who are new. Like, when I hear Chief Creative Officer, if I hadn't been in gaming forever, Mm -hmm. and, like, I would assume genuinely that you were an artist and creative, and, like, I would think that those people fed to you, but I would think that the engineering would go somewhere else. And so I, I always think that it's kind of, I understand why it's called that, but I also yeah. think it's a little bit of a misnomer from that regard. And it so- is a little bit, yeah. Uh, I think that's a main problem in the games industry. We're not really standardized um, the way some, uh, you know, various industries are. And somewhat because we're new and we're still like, it's constantly changing. Um, I think for us, we settled on, I mean, we, for a little while, we were calling me chief product officer. Um, and we went to creative just because I liked like tapping into that aspect of it. Um, cause I am a designer, um, but I haven't, yeah, yeah. And I haven't 
I've been able to really, uh, in my career, dive deep into the design aspects uh, of what I, in, in my career in general. And so for me, it's, it is a little bit of a, uh, it, it's a reminder to myself that this is a, um, it's innovative and it's imaginative role. And it is kind of my, uh, it's a reminder to me every day that it isn't just about making decisions based on what's going to pull the money in, but what's going to be the creative, right? What's going to be the spark that goes out into the world that we're going to be happy about. And, and right now, um, as we're still very new, um, I am the like actual like creative director on our first game. So, you know, that's the, the creative aspect, a lot of the, the structure of the design that's happening right now is what I'm, is me. <laughs> so uh, I've got a couple of narrative designers that work with me right now, but otherwise it's me. <laughs> so that is right now I'm being very creative actually. So, yeah. so let's start with the fact that you've been doing this for a long fucking time and kind of how we got here, because I think one thing that would be real, that will not in games, um, that it would be helpful to understand is why do all video games wind up looking basically alike. Like we could all think of the outliers, right? Like, oh, you say all video games, but they're and exactly. So those are the exceptions that prove the rule. But otherwise, if you have basic genres, right? You have your first person shooter, you have your RPGs, you have your, you know, platform games, but there's like four or five basic genres. That's it hasn't been a lot of movement on those basic genres and yes i know that rainbow change that and we'll talk about that in a second but like talk just about how we got to this place where every title is just a different like same shit different day kind of iteration um i think it's it's similar to the same thing that you'll see in any creative industry right um it's a matter of trying to the people who have the money only want to back things that are guaranteed to win. And the only way you can promise a thing is going to win is if you can show data from something else that has won already and say, oh, well, here's a thing that made money. So if I, so create that thing because we just assume, right, that if the one before it made money, then a copy of it will also make money, right? And so it's a matter of being able to reduce risk, right, when it comes to people who are making all the money decisions, they don't want to take a huge risk. So that's why most of your blockbuster movies are all very similar premise, right? This is why, uh, you know, the same story, the same novel gets uh, rewritten over and over and over again, right? Or those like really famous authors that have best-selling novels all the time. You're like, oh my God, are they really just putting some new names on their characters and, and re-releasing the same exact book? Uh, right? <laughs> Different iterations of the same freaking things than we have. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's the same thing, right? And so we we run into that same issue in the games industry as with any other creative industry, which is that it's very hard to sell innovation um, in a creative space because if you can't, right, like people don't want to take a risk without being able to show that this is the thing that made money before, um, you know, and so people make copies because they know that that will be income, but it's not exciting. 
So let's use that then to talk about memory assembly because the company that you and the rest of the coven, so that we call the founders at Rainbow Unicorn Games, and you guys basically said, call bullshit on all of that. Um, and I don't want to tell your origin story for you, even though obviously I'm familiar. But so tell us a little bit about like how that decision made and like what makes Rainbow Unicorn different and then what challenge that brings. Yeah, so uh, for us, a lot of what we're looking to build and the way that, that we want to break that mold is, for one, showing the data not necessarily based on what's been built before, but showing data based on the audience that is waiting for something new to be created. So there's, right, a lot of research that's been coming out. There's this one, like, particular um, data point that we re really love pulling out um, and that it is that 47% of gamers are saying that they choose not to play games because they don't see themselves in it or their own story being told. And that particular number hit me really hard because it was like, that tells us that the industry is leaving 40% of a potential market just, just ignoring completely, right? Um, and so that's such a huge possibility space, right? That tells us that there is money to be made there. Um, someone just needs to start like diving into that space and, and not with the same rehashed gameplay mechanics that we've seen over and over and over again, because apparently those are not serving, right? The, this market is saying, that's not what I want right? I'm not being served yet. So, um, so they're specifically calling out for something new. And so the way we want to address this space is to not fully just go like way off and just like create some, there's some amazing, really crazy indie developed games that can happen out there, but we're talking about building a studio that has AAA quality. So we need to be able to like put some kind of research and monitor, you know, uh, hopes towards monetization behind it. Right. Um, so a lot of what we're looking at doing is actually taking some of these uh, tried and true mechanics that you see in um, really, you know, beloved games like your, your Bioware games that give you these like narrative choice options. They're really deep and wonderful storytelling, but combining that into uh, your phone so that's accessible to, uh, you know, a primarily uh, you know, women market who isn't in the console or PC space, when they're playing games, they're playing on a thing that they can pull out in their pocket in five or 15 minutes, right? Little snippets of gameplay. So we want to combine this more accessible space with uh, a more complex and deep gameplay experience that isn't focused on combat because there's so much combat. Right? I, could, I can download a billion games right now. There are games around combat, but um, there's other things right? That, that we can make systems and create entertainment off of. What I will say is that when I first heard and saw the pitch for Rainbow Unicorn Games, yeah. I was jazzed about all the titles, but I was also a little sad because like part of what you said was, you know, people don't see themselves in the games that they want to play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like I, and so to me, like 
I kind of want to play a game where somebody goes and punches people in the nose, but I would really like them to some way represent me. And so like having games that do like, yes, you're right. There's a thousand beat them up games that we could download, but none of them look like me, right? Yeah. Nobody in there looks like the queer native chick with way too many curves, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and so like I, I was jazzed hearing the pitch thinking that that was the direction. And then don't get me wrong, very excited about the titles that are there, but talk to me a little bit about why, because it was a different direction you could have gone. And yeah. that's pretty like definitively like, nope, that's not who we are. Like five years from now, when we're on like title D, rock on, let's have some American yeah. ass kicking. But today that's not it. What was it? Was it just like a total, like, we're just, there's so much violence in the world. Let's do something different. Was it just like your personal passion? Like how did that break get made? I think that's, I think that's part of it, right? For, for me, when there's too much violence in the world, right? And also it's a space that even though there aren't a lot of uh, fighting games where we can see people like us in those fighting games, um, we are seeing some movement towards that. It's slow, it's like not as fast as we would like to see it, but there is some movement in there. And there's a lot of like, um, like it, that feels like a mechanic. And it's also a thing that I've worked in for years, right? Like I've built so many games that were based around like combat mechanics and everything that it also feels like it's, it's done. And there's a lot of people who have that space covered. Um, that I want to make sure that when we jump out there, we jump out with something completely fresh and new. Um, and that is also bringing in um, a corner of our audience that, right, one of the things when we say that there's all this audience that isn't being served, right, some of that might be that they want some kind of a game experience that isn't centered around violence, right? And so, that's something I really wanted. I felt like we could reach out to the broadest funnel of our potential audience by saying, okay, you know what? Do you want something without combat, but something you can see yourself in? Something that's still going to be interesting and an intriguing and depth of game, but isn't going to be stressful in your life, right? And that's, uh, so that was part of it, right? And then at some point, yeah, I definitely want to see us like, Go, go out there. I want to see all types of different games, right? But I think that the, the first step was let's really step away completely from what's been the standard. And I totally, like, as a lifelong gamer, totally get and feel and, like, embrace that, right? Like, my husband always gives me a hard time. I love gaming, but I am so fucking picky about what I will play. And like the rules of my dating are like lengthy and detailed. And he, <laughs> which I think he literally has like a spreadsheet somewhere because <laughs> I won't do platform games. I won't do first person shooters. I won't do any game in which I kill other humans. So it's not okay. Like, and so like for years, my favorite game was Fables. Ah. It's always like, why? Like, what is it? I was like, baby. This is an entire game about predicated on interior decorating, fashion choices, bullshitting, and horns. I am all in. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Like, 
if I have sex without a condom and say, well, I can get a disease and I got to take a potion. Yeah, I can. Or I can get knocked up and have babies and all the different compliments. Yeah, I can. Like to me, and he was always like, you have very weird gameplay. Things. But I think that that's kind of your point, right? That like, I'm not alone. I know lots of other people that are like, freaking genius way of thinking about that game now i do want to play i want to like use my dog to find random condoms <laughs> on the ground and table but like that kind of sense of humor and that is problematic as peter molyneux is like he made great games right and so or makes great games i don't know what it is now um, but like i think that that's kind of the ethos that you guys are, are capturing a rainbow unicorn and that's what's so exciting is it's all of those moments of the people who don't have seats at the table had it like, wouldn't it be great if this game was only this? Like, I didn't have to run around and like blast people. Like, I could just decorate these houses and then like do a little whoring on the side, and that would be great. And so, yeah. like, I just, I, I totally hear it. And I'm super excited about all of those things, totally. And um, so, let's talk about your street cred and how. <laughs> to be the chief creative officer for Rainbow Unicorn Games. Because it wasn't like we were like, who do we know that likes games and has lady parts? Athena! Like, it wasn't like that. We <laughs> so um, tell just like, tell me a little bit about like your rising up through the ranks and like where you started and how you got here. Yeah, uh, so I, I always love telling when people ask me where I came from. So I came from theater. Uh, which is always a fun thing to tell people in tech. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so I, that was my degree is in directing theater. Uh, and uh, I, so what's funny about this is I was a theater kid at the same time I became a gamer kid. So at, at the same time, when I was about six, I started playing games, but I also had a speech impediment. So one of the ways to get me out of that and to get my, me from being extremely shy, which clearly I was cured of, um <laughs> to put me in theater so in case anybody has a, a very shy uh child just put them in theater it will solve everything um so both of these things are things that i grew up with uh was storytelling both on the stage and um in video games and so when i had to go off to college i had to make a choice um and i, I decided i still wanted to try to be an actress and then and then it became um, my fascination with directing instead, the actual like storytelling and pulling all the bits together. Um, but I was really frustrated with um, how not innovative uh, the theater, professional theater scene was, right? So much like you were talking about how, how in games we're seeing the same thing rehashed, it's in an industry as old as the theater is, it's even worse, right? Like it, it's the same rehashed shows over and over and over again and the same formula and if it doesn't meet that formula it's not going to hit broadway and you can only make money if you're on broadway um and that, that just felt really tired to me um i wanted something else i wanted to be able to like actually to reach out my audience have them have them feel what it's like to make decisions about things um and so where i was getting to do that was in games and specifically MMOs started about that same time. I was very heavy into EverQuest. Um, and so I decided I needed to, I needed to make this. Uh, and so I started uh, following all the game companies in my area. 
any gamer ever would just be like, of course she was having an EverQuest. Of course she was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just like, I was such an EverQuest nerd. Uh, I was living in, in Austin, uh, Texas at the time. And uh, so I found out that Shadowbane was being made there. Um, and they were looking for actors, oddly enough. So my first job in the games industry was an as an actor. Uh, and I would run people through live in-person quests. So I, would, I was selling computers at Dell during the day and at night I would log in uh, or go down to the studio and log in and, uh, and run around uh, as one of the various characters in the lore, uh, you know, picking up players in a town and being like, come with me, I have a quest to run on. And then we would run off and we would just improv our way through a quest. Uh, you know, a few nights a week. And um, yeah, that's where I got my start. And from there, I dug into um, a lot of really great supporters there at Wolfpack, um, who really just started teaching me all there was about games. So I dug into, you know, community stuff, QA stuff, started learning about design. Um, and then I went to work uh, for NCSoft um, in QA. I worked there for about four years. I launched City of Her Heroes and Lineage 2 on the same day. Um, <laughs> that was quite a day. It's uh, no big, two major titles. Yeah, no big deal. I did that. Um, and then I was QA lead over on Guild Wars uh, for its launch and a couple other of its uh, expansions. Uh, and then um, after a little while of, of doing QA work, um, I decided to go back. I had like one year left of my degree. Uh, so the folks, a lot of the folks that worked with me at Wolfpack Studios had started another startup uh, for an MMO and they invited me to come be a designer uh, with them it, as, while I finished my degree. So I went over there and I actually got to be a world designer for about a year and a half, uh, which was really great with the, the startup studio. So we were like building the world from scratch. It was super exciting. I got to play in the engine. I went everything from like quest building to putting together monsters to uh, you know, writing pages and pages of lore um, and all of this stuff. But um, in the midst of that, I kept finding myself distracted by the uh, communication problems between the, the team. Uh, and so when that studio shut down, uh, I felt a really big draw to go into production because I wanted, uh, there were so many people who have amazing talent to design. Um, and I felt like there weren't that many people with a great people management talent. And I felt like that was something I could contribute that there wasn't a lot of. So um, I ended up going and being a live producer to launch the beta of All Points Bulletin uh, in Scotland uh, with Real Time Worlds. And then um, after a couple of years of that, I ended up on the East Coast um, where I got recruited by um, Turbine. Uh, slash Warner Brothers Games, and then worked at Warner Brothers Games as a producer and then an ex executive producer of Dungeons and Dragons Online and then Lord of the Rings Online. Um, and then I launched our first mobile game there. Uh, so I got uh, pulled on to Batman Arkham Underworld about six weeks before its launch, and I helped us get our first mobile game out in the world. And then I was there to support uh, the launch of Game of Thrones Conquest for them. Um, and yeah, and so I was doing all of that as executive producer. And in the games industry, um, specifically in Warner Brothers, once again, titles are different depending on what studio you're at. 
particularly what it meant for me to be an executive producer on those titles was that I was in charge of the um, entire uh, PNL and the entire team and the roadmap for each of those products. So um, I was determining what we were building for Dungeons and Dragons Online and Lord of the Rings Online. Um, and I was managing the entire team and I was in charge of making sure that they were profitable and working, right, as a business. Um, so on that note, most of, obviously, most of gaming history takes place on a PC or a console. And mobile gaming is still kind of like the newer hit on the block. I mean, yeah. none of it's an old block, right? Yeah. <laughs> both tell us we are not old, Athena. Yeah. <laughs> Very um, Totally at heart, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, it has been really interesting to watch as mobile gaming takes off. That like there have been some epic sales in the mobile gaming. That like huge titles that launched and just like yeah. from every major studio, right? Everybody has had some super super high profile, just like massive flops. Why? What do you think it is that is that like, why is like the uptake for those things on a console or a PC there? And then when they try to translate them to a mobile, everybody just goes, nah. what, what is, what do you think it is that they're getting wrong here? Um, so there's a couple of things here, right? So, uh, you know, one is the gameplay experience. Right, when you're, there's a big difference between um, the gameplay, both the attention as well as the way you control um, the game mechanics on your phone, right? This little tiny glass square that I hold in my hands versus something that's on a giant TV or even, even in my screen. Like even, there's a huge difference for me between PC gaming with my keyboard and playing with my Xbox controller on my TV, right? And just the way, um, things feel or like the complexity you have. But there's also the matter of the time limits, right? So when we're designing for a PC or a console, we can design for somebody sitting for an hour, two hours, three hours at a time, right, for their sessions. But I think that those companies that were building towards PC and console with that in mind, having to switch those gameplay mechanics over to a phone where people might only have like five to 15 minutes to ded dedicate in a session. That was a huge change um, for how to even design the experience in the first place. It, you now have to be in these, these little bits of time. There's also the like, it's becoming less of a problem now as phones become their own little mini computers. But right at the beginning part, it was also a matter of like, how do you take these like, big gorgeous art you know we can push art uh you know boundaries all over the place on your pc and your console um when phones were you know mobile gaming first started you couldn't do that so much on the phone and so it was a matter of how do you still get that um fidelity i think the other problem is that a lot of these companies that were building towards pc and console when they decided to switch to mobile they had not been free to play games to start with so one of the things that, um, you know, I always like to say benefits me, and while I've only done mobile games for a few years, I've been in free-to-play games for over a decade because a lot of the MMOs I worked for switched to free-to-play, 
right? Um, so they were PC games, but they we we moved from a subscription model in the midst of my career into um, how do you get players to come in for free and then and then pay for the experience in little bits and pieces. And there's you have to be thinking about your monetization um, when you're free to play from the very basis of your design. Because if it becomes a thing you just slap on top, it it doesn't blend well. And the players can tell. And, and what it comes across as is just like either a money grab or, right, like it, it doesn't feel holistic to the experience. And so I think that was also some of the failures you saw where people who were trying to design for a PC game based on a single purchase, just throwing some free-to-play stuff on top and it, it doesn't work, right? Yeah, I think that like, I think that's one of the big gaming studios just really don't quite know how to work on a freemium model. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think you know I'm a big Diablo fan. Like, yeah. Or finally comes up, I will be taking off a week to just sit on my ass and play Diablo for a week because it's very important to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite. Um, but, like, we joked for years that, like, they have the same, like, 10, 12 uh, phrases that the um, the characters say over and over, like, when they walk in. And we're, you know, super easy content would be, we, premium content for download would be to have adult version of the heck, you know, fuck you! <laughs> and yeah! Just, but, like, those types of things that, again, if you had figured that out at the beginning, right, yep. When you did it, and when you're recording all the dialogues, etc., that would be super easy to have like multiple packs of that over time that you could download. You could have ones that were seasonal. You have like all kinds of things. But nobody like that kind of low hanging fruit. I think it's just a very different way of thinking about the game yeah. in terms of what is going to be like a micro purchase, but that's going to be a fun enough micro purchase that you're going to be willing to do it. And I think, you know, from a mobile gaming perspective, we've all had that experience where, like, you're playing some game, and, like, I always tell my husband, like, there's this game that I play, this stupid game is a pointless game. It's one of those, like, time-waste games. But when I'm just trying to ignore my children, <laughs> turn off my brain at the end of the day, I do not play. Yeah. And we are very smart about, like, they let me play for, like, 10 minutes, and if I want to do anything else, I have to spend a little bit of money. But it's like five bucks. And so I think to myself, is it worth five bucks to me right now to not have to stop playing this game and therefore not have to engage with my children? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Five bucks is yours, my friend. And I carry on playing. And so I think that you're right. Like, it's just a very, very, very different fundamental approach yeah. to like how you think about earning the money and how you think about the spend process within a game. Yeah. So, for Rainbow Unicorn Games, oh, she's taking it off. Okay. Will yeah. all of your games be free to play? Will they be a premium? Will they have subscription models? Like, will it be, will there be an option for, are you, are you going to do ads and then you pay one time fee and the ads go away? Like, what's the plan, Lady Batman? Yeah, uh, so the design right now that we're focusing on is very, like, free-to-play, you know, games-as-a-service um, standard, right? So we want to we wanna be able to put it out there and free because we want 
as many people to try it out as possible, right? Like come in, have fun, enjoy the game, get some time in there, see if this is a thing you like and that you want to support. Um, we'll probably do ads as like little incentives, but not like just I have to, you have to get through this ad to do a thing um, because ads are actually great revenue models for, for games. I've had games that we just stopped development on and literally just supported itself through ads, right? Uh, because they work, right, for that purpose. Um, so they're, they're a great revenue model. Um, and what you can do is just like, if you not, you don't have to watch an ad. You can just get some freebies if you want to watch an ad and you know that you're supporting the company without uh, you actually having to shell some money out. Um, but then, you know, we'd have other like, you know, additional things like, but I think a lot of what we want to focus on is being able to create items. And this was something that we learned. Um, I, I learned a lot in Lord of the Rings online was how much people love to support your game with just cosmetic purchases, right? If they really love a thing, they want to support you. They want to pay to keep the game going and to make it successful because it means that you'll create more stuff for them. And so if you can create just fun and interesting things, and, and I remember actually the first time World of Warcraft decided to sell a cosmetic mount. I was working at an MMO, another MMO company at the time and we heard they were gonna do it and they were gonna sell it for 60 bucks. And we were like, they're insane. Nobody will do that. Nobody will pay 60 bucks for a cosmetic flying unicorn or whatever. Um, it doesn't even add anything. I was so annoyed that I missed it. I was a beta tester on WoW because I'm not old, Athena, but I have been around for a while. And no. so I have to be a beta tester on WoW. I think my ex-husband was an alpha tester and then I was in on the beta and then we played WoW a lot in the beginning. Again, gorgeous, gorgeous game. And I know that Blizzard looked at like how to shift it. That's one of the ones that they tried to shift to mobile and just there was not like the complexity of it, not a way. Um, but yes, like they definitely proved that model. They proved the monthly subscription model, right? Yeah. They proved all kinds of models that everybody was like, that will never be a thing. Yeah, like we, we didn't do that, right? And so, but that they were, but they were right, right? And and it was and it was brilliant. So you know, it's things like that we want to look into, like how do we utilize some of the great lessons we've learned in free to play about how to support our product while supporting our player, right? While giving our players things to be excited about and that they want. So we are looking into monetization systems that are, um, you know, uh, positive versus negative in the way they're additive, right? They're giving you a new awesome, you know, item that you can own and love and collect and it's special, but it's not a like, have to have right we don't want to put a ton of like gates like there'll be some amount of gating to content um based on time played and that kind of thing because yeah we have to pay our bills at some point there has to be like some cutoff you can't get it all for free right there but maybe you get it all for free if you wait right so if it's it's a time versus money thing um and then the other things that we really want to dive into is being able to let some players support other players right? So gifting systems. Um, that's another really great thing about, um, you know, one of these things about uh, free-to-play games that people like to actually criticize uh, those of us who make them for is our focus on whales. 
which in case you don't know it, the, a whale is basically somebody who comes in and just pays a whole lot. I mean, these people are in the like thousands of dollars a month in your game, right? Uh, kind of area. And you want whales. Whales are what actually support most free-to-play models. Um, but what you but often that can create a very negative experience between whales and people who just play the game for free or for low bits of amount of money because oftentimes spend in a game actually gives more power. Um, but one of the ways that you can actually utilize um, that uh, monetization of whales, the positive of community is actually giving them the ability to give things that they buy to other players because they want people to play with. Right? They want people to experience this game with. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fun if they were playing by themselves. Right? They could play a single-player game. Um, they want to be playing it with other people. So there's lots of like um, things that we would look into that make sure that we're um, supporting that even in the monetization of our game, we are supporting a giving community. Right? A community that can support um, players supporting players and not just us. Like, I think that the idea, like, a player-supporting community is fantastic. But I know that there are antisocial players out there. Oh, yeah. Who would just like to be left alone. Yeah. To just play by themselves. So that's actually, that's why I stopped playing WoW, is because there's not a pause button. Mm -hmm. That I can be like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. Pause, get up, go, come back. Like, that's not a thing. You spent... 30 minutes waiting on that creature to spawn. You went to the bathroom, somebody came in and yanked it. Now you've got to wait another 30 minutes. Like, yeah. wow. And I was just like, oh, I, I can't with this. That's why I love Diablo. Pause button. All the pause buttons. So I'm going to give, yeah, we should just give that secret out to the entire games industry right now. If you want the parent market, pause button. Pause button. That's all you need. Just a pause button. That's it. I just gave you guys the free. Advice to go make your millions. Put a pause button. Because it's, it's impossible as a parent, right? Like there's so many, there's so many fun games out there that I have really enjoyed over the years that I just I, I could not continue to play as a responsible adult. <laughs> yeah. It was just not a thing. And so the ability to like log in, play for a fixed amount of time, pause button, and leave. And I know that, like, that's a lesson that Nintendo learned, right, with the Animal Crossing, with the old iteration, no pause button, you were gone for too long, they grouched at you, it was weird and a thing. New iteration, oh, it's okay, you're in that here, it's fun, okay, there is on. So, and yeah. um, I think it's really, I, I think it's a hard, like, balance to get. So talk to me about, like, as a new gaming studio, you don't have like buckets of user data and all of like the, you know, access to big data info, et cetera, that we anticipate that the evil tech sector has about us. You're just going off of gut and community. So how do you make sure as you're getting ready to launch this, prior, this first title that we get right? Like what does yeah. that look like? Uh, user testing, user testing, user testing. Um, that is like the main thing. Um, and actually I was thinking when you were saying like, why were there these giant flops um, when other large companies would try to switch to mobile? And that this is another example of that, right? 
and that it um and that is the the one of the things that one of the gifts that mobile gives to us although uh, you could do this on pc and everything too it's just people aren't as used to it in a like i paid my money up front i expect an entire game what's wonderful about a free-to-play mobile or, you know free-to-play um monetization style is that when you're free and you say here's a part of a game people will come in and play it and experience it and tell you what they liked about that little part and then they'll say i did like that i didn't like that and then you could check the data and see where did they stop playing when did they keep playing um how are they you know how, are they buying the cosmetic things did you that you created are they not right um and then you have a chance to like and then you can even we can talk to them i mean it was that was a thing that i don't see a lot of uh mobile games do and that i'd like to see more of is that um similar to those of us who worked with an mmo community right like my audience like i'd have conversations with them on a regular basis like what did you like about the latest update or what would you like to see in the next one right um having that conversation and, and this is one of the things that we want to do to make sure that you know we're building the right thing especially without a giant bunch of data behind us is that we build a little thing we put it out there in front of some people and we say how was that was that fun did you like it do you want more of this you want more of that less of this less of that right um and then build the next bit of it and put it on there and be constantly iterating on that experience um and then that way you're building what your community specifically wants and what they're going to get excited about and what you hope they'll pay for right <laughs> you know and and then actually you can find out that way too what they're willing to pay for because you put some things out there and they'll be like i'm not gonna like i just one of my favorite games that i've been playing like recently released uh fingernail polish as a cosmetic and i was like i'm not paying for fingernail polish are you kidding me right like, but give me another, like, tiara, I'm paying for it, right? Like, <laughs> I need to know whatever this title is, where fingernail polish and tiaras are an option, because I may be in. Most of those, in my experience, are more very, like, Barbie-ish, and I don't mind Barbie. Yeah. So, you can't talk about, like, really exciting and effective mobile games without talking about Candy Crush, because, yeah, like, the average person, right, like, that's, that's the ultimate mobile gaming Cinderella story. Mm -hmm. Game for his mom. Next thing you know, bazillionaire, everybody in the whole wide world plays Game Crush. And what, so first of all, like, give some facts and do some truth telling in terms of like, how atypical is that? Like, what, that's one out of how many would be, and then also like, what is the perfect storm that creates a candy crush? Oh gosh, um, you know that's a combination of really. I mean, one, it was polished. It was polished game design. Um, it's a it's a really great puzzle. It set off, right? A, um, I mean, it probably. I can't remember if Bejeweled came out before Candy Crush. I think it was probably similar to the. World of Warcraft story? Yeah. The, the jewel was already out. The jewel has been out. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably very similar to how Blizzard won the MMO race, right? Which is somebody comes out ahead of you, throws a couple of ideas out there, 
right? And then you look at that and you go, oh, let me take a bit of this and a bit of that and then I'm gonna polish it up, make it really amazingly beautiful and then send it out there. Candy Crush was so adorable, right? And they took like, the Bejeweled thing was already really fun and addictive, right? But it wasn't necessarily, didn't have this little Candyland board for me to follow on, didn't have these cute little caricatures and stuff. And so they took that very solid gameplay, addictive gameplay, and they created this uh, story around it. Quite literally, we want to be able to tell stories. I love Bejeweled. I still play Bejeweled. I've never in my life played Candy Crush. <laughs> really? Oh, one time, not ever. I also have a portal for what that's worth. So, like, I am the, the one exception to the two, like, uber ubiquitous gaming. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. That's amazing. I mean, you might like it. I don't know. Maybe maybe you're not big into Candyland. Um, but, like, but it was, it is one of those similar, right, things where you take that, um, take that mechanic and you add on to it um, a really beautiful polish and a story, which I think is something that um, folks can miss, especially if they're trying to target a broader market. Um, and if they're trying to go right into this, I have this uh, conversation often when people are talking about, um, you know, well, one, gender is a spectrum. <laughs> I'm just going to put that right here. Uh, but yeah, but like there are people who fall towards the male end of the spectrum tend to like more of the like, just give me the hard like numbers and math bits. And I love uh, mathy dice, right? Like um, bits of gameplay, right? They want to see the like the mechanics of it, right? Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, Women, folks who tend towards, uh, you know, what we traditionally think of as, as women gameplay styles is very story driven, right? So um, one of the things that Candy Crush did and what a lot of the games that are being really successful with that area of the market are doing is adding a story element to it, really setting where I am, why am I? moving things around on a board. Okay, gems are pretty, but like, what am I, a dwarf in a mine or something? Oh, all of a sudden, Joel's more interesting to me, right? Uh, but in this Candy Crush, it was like, no, there's like sweet little candies and you're you're smashing them for funsies. And then, so this cute little character can walk down the lane, right? But that's enough to set you in a specific place in time that lets you escape uh, the kids who are screaming at you uh, to get dinner ready already. Uh, and, and just be like, I'm sorry, I'm playing with some candy right now. You know, I'll see you later. To your point, like, those can spawn a whole bunch of others, right? So, like, I play the Garden State game. Yeah. It's basically the same thing, except there's this whole story about him renovating a garden. I save up all of my points, and then I watch, like, for 20 minutes, like, whatever is happening in the world of this garden, and my husband thinks I'm a circus freak, and I don't even care. So, like, I think that that's you know, I think your point is really well made that like engaging stories is a thing. But I do have to ask on the engaging story thing, especially as you came to the world of gaming from being a director, mm -hmm. cutscenes. They had their moments, right? Yeah. Like Final Fantasy, it was like, oh, it almost got to like 60% cutscene, 40% game. They got real controversial 
it's a like love hate some people are like i like that i'm basically watching a movie while also playing games other people are like cutscenes can go and absolutely bite my shiny metal ass so <laughs> i would be in the latter category even though i like the story i don't need like some forced five minute thing about yeah. what like what is the actual if you know and you may not but like what is the actual demographic data around cutscenes like that seems what you're saying that that would be more in the feminine camp than in the masculine but like is that true or like did everybody now that they hate them no but now i want to know that data now i want to call up some data friends of mine and be like what is the data on cutscenes um how many of us just cut like skip through them um i but i would say i would I mean, I don't know. It could go either way, right? Because I think some people do like uh, playing some games that, I mean, I've actually downloaded, I've downloaded a, a new, there was a new like MMO on the phone that, that got launched this past week um, that I was playing the other day, but it pretty much is just on autopilot for the most part. It like runs you from one place to another and then it goes through these like cutscenes. Um, even Genshin Impact, I really like how pretty that is, but I feel like there's a lot of cutscenes being thrown at me. Um, and I'm not, I don't feel like in those cases I'm playing the game. Um, but I think that's really one of those things you have to like feel out your audience for on if it's a thing they enjoy or not. Um, to me, like for our purposes and our design, um, one of the things we're really focusing in on is you telling your own story. That's a really hard thing to do with a cutscene, right? Because cutscenes are usually like a pre-built animated story bit and so right i need to know what does the player's character look like what are they going to do right and it really limits your choice unless i'm going to only give you like three options but even then i'm taking the chance and making three different cutscenes that maybe nobody ever chooses the third one and i just waited wasted some cinematics money which is some serious money um if you're ever in budgets for <laughs> games um versus like giving the player like a chance to live that out and experience it themselves um there's a game that i'm playing where i get to like customize the way my character looks but the they've kind of done these little mini cutscenes. they're almost like little like vignettes almost like a moving comic book picture but i get i got immediately frustrated with that game because the character that's in these mini vignettes is not the character i designed so I preach on that one. I have a big thing about I hate, I get immediately frustrated with games where the character you see does not change when you change armor, accessories, what have you. Like, no. And I mean, like, every game. 99 Nights is a beautiful game. But it does not matter what you have put on your character in Nine Nights. It always looks exactly the same, mostly because I'm sure the the price tag of all of the cutscenes there, right? But it's really frustrating because you're like, that sword looks badass in the picture, and yet this does not change on the screen. And even things like Spyro, where <laughs> because I have children, so I'll play things like that, right? But you know. There's so many, anytime a game does, is not responsive to the character choices that I've made, I think that increasingly that's an expectation. Yeah. That, like, there was a time, like, there was a grace period because it was hard with the technology, and now the technology is so ubiquitous. Everybody's like, oh, I just expect. But if yeah. I change shoes, 
a change shoes and like yeah around changes my shoes as well and it's what's embedded in any of those like little moments of like viewing and that sort of thing I think it's very much that idea of like when you are building for this medium right and when players are playing this medium first of all they're playing it right and the difference between play versus um watching right is how much i'm affecting this is this story about me or is somebody else telling me a story about them right and so i think the more your game is intending to tell a story um about somebody else then cutscenes make sense but the more you're trying to make that story about the let the player tell their own story the less right it because you want them to have that room right so if we're telling a story about batman cutscenes make sense because it's bad yeah. yeah but if we're telling like if we've told you to create your world and create yourself then that cutscene then probably doesn't make as much sense but it's yeah yeah I cannot believe this, but we are actually almost out of time. I could talk to you all day, every day about gaming and gaming stories, but you know this. This is why we do it. Um, so before I let you go, um, first of all, we have to say that the big title that we're working on is Romance and Jan, and the Romance and Jan is not just a mobile game. There's other things people can do. So talk a little bit about Romance and Jan. Yeah. So, uh, I came up with Romancing Jan, I don't know, it must have been like three or four years ago now, uh, when I was uh, playing another card game called, uh, a card game called Mary and Mr. Darcy. Um, and I just loved that uh, the, the game creators of that game, highly recommend this game, go out and play it. It's so fun. Uh, I loved that they had really uh, gamified this like society behaviors and this like snippy little like backbiting stuff that would happen between these characters. And I watched some friends of mine playing at one time and they really got into the characters of it. Um, but the thing that I, I ran into frustration with and that I do with most Regency era Jane Austen kind of stories is that they're still very gender, uh, gender norm based, right? Like I was like, why do I have to either be married off or become a spinster? Like, why can't I be the, you know, inheritor of great wealth and fortune and there's like 10 people hoping that I'll choose them, right? Like, why can't I play that and not have to change my gender, right, to do that? Um, you shack up with my um, friend's sister and yeah. be spinsters together. Right, exactly. But like it felt it felt very right. That world was very limiting. And and for some people that's part of the like is the escape, you know, thinking about what it's like to have challenges. Um, but I wanted to create a world where I got to play in the with the like the nuance and the all the like society rules, but without them being uh, gendered and racist. Um, and so I created this idea of us playing like uh, a role-playing game in person. It was like a two-hour ball experience where people were trying to make matches and spread rumors about each other within a two-hour like time frame. Um, and I got to do it at, at this uh, live-action role-playing convention. Um, I ran the first run of it, got a bunch of feedback on like what systems worked and what didn't. Um, was going to run it again and then COVID hit. 
Um, and um, at the time of COVID, I had just started a uh, board gaming restaurant slash pub. Um, and that unfortunately did not survive COVID. Uh, so I was trying to figure out what to do with myself while shut off from the world. And one of the things that I loved about my pub was that I got to connect with people every day, like physically. And it, it made me think about this game that I had made and how important it was for me to like connect physically. One of the great things about that era was this idea of letters coming to people in the mail and these wonderful, like interesting newspapers. Um, and so I created a, a letter game with it uh, that ran for about a year um, in which people were sending letters back and forth. And in the midst of that, I ended up hiring a couple amazing writers from various backgrounds that rewrote the entire history of the world to be more, uh, you know, inclusive and um, not, not colonized. Um, and so some of our uh, amazing writers that work with us now at Rainbow Unicorn Games um, built this world uh, with me. And um, so we ran it that way. Uh, and then we actually got a chance to finally do the big ball experience that I'd always had in my head um, just back on April 30th. Um, and so our hope is to, to have more experiences like that where players got to come in and they had like a little like paragraphic, you know, description of who they were in the world. Um, and they had, uh, they got a chance to come in and, and, and do some gossip and stuff with each other and find out things about happening in the world and just have a wonderful tea and ball and dinner um, and, and get dressed up and have some fun in the world. Um, and then now uh, we're going to make it into a digital game too. So um, all kinds of places to, to kind of explore this uh romantic escapism, as it were. I do love the way your brain works, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, so one last thing before I let you go, I always ask, um, how do you answer when somebody asks you how much you make? I make $200,000 a year. I love that. Because it was the Unicorn Games, we were transparent about salaries. That's right. Because, I... And so I just, you know, I do ask everybody, but also I always yeah. <laughs> say the answer. Yeah. yeah, no, I think I think it's really important. Um, you know, I, for one, went through a situation uh, with a former uh, company that I worked for where um, I found out that I was being discriminated against in, via pay. And I found that out when all of a sudden I was in charge of people's pay and I could see it, could see it in black and white. And, and even when I presented it in black and white, I had it argued to me whether or not it was a thing that needed to be fixed. And so I think the only way we can fix this um, as a society is to just be open and honest about it, right? This isn't a matter of like, I, I don't think it's right to like get paid because you happen to be a better negotiator than another person. Like it, we should be paid for, for what we have to offer, right? And like that shouldn't be based on and we can't get rid of discrimination if we're not honest about it. So, yeah, to me, I'm honest. I'm upfront about it. I encourage other people to do the same. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you so much. We'll have links in the show notes to River Unicorn Games, to Amazing Dan. People can fall in love with the world that you've created. Um... You've been listening to Hey, I Want Your Job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com.
We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job.